Good morning, and welcome to Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today we begin our series over the next couple of weeks, preparing our hearts for the coming of Jesus at Christmas. This morning's message is called The Advent of Humility. Thanks for listening. Who here thinks their kids, you know when your kids were little, little babies, were the cutest in the world? Cutest babies, and like other people's kids are cute too, right? I mean, they're fine, but no kids are cuter than your own kids, right? I've seen some pretty adorable kids, but I'm convinced, sorry for everybody, but I'm convinced little Sadie is just the cutest little thing I've ever seen. And other children, you know, they, they, they have... They have meaning in our lives, right? They're, they're adorable and all. But uh, what we end up finding is that other people's children tend to be a little bit removed from us. They don't impact our lives that much, except for our own. Well, there was a baby that was born 2,000 years ago. I wonder, I wonder how he has impacted your life. It's not your own child, right? Middle Eastern, right? Born into a small family, humble circumstances, has he affected your life? Has the birth of Jesus, because the birth of babies happens all the time, and it tends to be only our own that really impact our lives. But you see, there is a baby that ought to impact our lives. That ought to really affect us. I, I began to think about this, and the coming of Jesus really leads towards the death of Jesus. And his sacrifice because of our sins, for the reason in which he came... As we'll look at next week, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Were you lost? Was that you at one point? And that his birth really does foretell his death. But there's more contained within his birth that I feel sometimes we don't fully recognize. I wrote a couple of things down. I said that uh, the birth of Jesus, I guess, means for me, the, hopefully for you, uh, the hope of eternal life. Does anybody want that? I, I want that. I wrote this down. Uh, it means I am seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Right? Even though I'm here physically, spiritually, I belong to him. I am God's child, and where Christ is, that's where my life is as well, which is why we look to his return. I also wrote down a, a, a hope of a resurrection of a new body. Any amens on that? Resurrection of a new body? That's right. Uh, there, there's more that I could have listed, but one thing I discovered as I began to kind of search through this was that many of these things that the birth of Jesus means for me really end up kind of still being at arm's length. I mean, the hope of eternal life is fine, right? But how does that change me now? The resurrection and a new body, I, that's wonderful, right? I'm looking forward to that. Praise the Lord, it's coming. But, you know, that's still down the road. And being seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, let's be honest, sometimes I don't fully understand what that means. I need to come to Bible study. There is something, however, that the birth of Jesus can mean for you today. Right now, end of November, starting into December, the birth of Jesus is this. It is God wrapped in flesh. The Apostle Paul understood this as he wrote to the church in Philippi. And if you brought your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Philippians. We're going to look through a couple of passages starting in chapter 2. Really seeking to find an answer for the question, what does the birth of Jesus mean for me? Uh, as you turn there, I want to give you a little bit of background so that you can kind of understand what the church is going through. As the church passed through the next couple of centuries, there became questions as to what 
Jesus' nature really was. The, the word the church came up with for this is the word incarnation. It's simply a word that means uh, made into flesh, wrapped into flesh. When, when I teach this sometimes, I, I say it's God wrapped in hamburger. Because what are we, we're just made of, right, meat and bones and blood and water, right? Well, uh, God is spirit, but Jesus is unique. Jesus is part of the incarnation. He is God wrapped in meat, in flesh, just like us. The early church struggled with this because one thing they discovered was that the flesh is continually wicked. Uh, the, the, the heart is deceptive and that we are led astray through the cravings and the desires of the flesh. And they came up with a, a heresy they called dualism. Where they said the body was really evil and bad but the, the spirit was good. And so they started the question, could Jesus really have a body? Could Jesus really be born of Mary? There, there was another group that struggled with recognizing Jesus as divine. You see, they loved to see Jesus as a man and as a teacher, but they believed that God needed to be preserved as one. And so a man couldn't truly be God. There was a group of people that arose during uh, the 4th century following a man named Arius. And, and they taught that there was a time when Jesus was not. They taught that Jesus was not eternally begotten of the Father. They didn't believe that God could really be wrapped in flesh. God eternal could come and could walk among us. They sat down, those who uh, understood that this was a problem, and through the scriptures, they boiled it down to a creed called the Nicene Creed. Has anyone heard of the Nicene Creed before? I'd like to read for you just a, a few passages that you will catch the beginning of how very important the incarnation is. Listen to what the fathers wrote. They said, we believe in one God, the Father, all-governing, creator of all things, visible and invisible. Well, that covers the Father, right? We believe in God the Father. We say something similar when we uh, read the Apostles' Creed. Now it moves to Jesus. They write this. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father as only begotten, that is, from the essence of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not created, and of the same essence as the Father, through whom all things come into being. It's easy to read. The significance of it, I think, fails to really impact our lives because we fail to understand who God is. Have you ever worked your way up the corporate ladder in your job? You know, you started out here. Right, scrubbing the toilets or whatever you did, and you finally worked your way up to a comfy desk job, right? Well, have you ever had the chance where someone said, hey, we need someone to go scrub the toilets again? Did you ever have that sense of, man, I, I paid my dues. I'm done with that, right? That belongs to somebody else. I, I have arrived, right? I am, I am better than this. I am above this. Now multiply that by a gazillion because God living in heaven, removed from the taint of sin, destruction, and selfishness, the putridness of our world and our false righteousness. You know what he does? He doesn't remain unattached. He doesn't remain transcendent. He puts himself 
in our mess. And he comes to earth. Some people don't even want to go scrub the toilet. And God was made man. It's called the incarnation. This is what Paul's going to write about in Philippians chapter 2. I invite you to look there with me. Uh, What we're going to do is we're going to look at the example that comes in the middle, and then we'll look at the command that comes first, and finally the result. So three little sections that we're going to look at with this. All right, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. Consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Up until this point, he's been giving a lot of commands, and we're going to look at those in a minute. But the next thing Paul does, when he wants to search for justification for these commands is he will reach back to the example of Jesus. I want you to see this, so follow with me down. Verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. It's an amazing passage as Paul is going to speak to the church in Philippi. This church loves Paul. They love Paul. They're Christian. They don't, they're not struggling with uh, other problems like they got in Corinth. right? Do you know what they, they want to do? They want to just love Paul. Now Paul at this time is in jail. And so the church, you know what they do? They get together and the elders, they say, we should send him a gift. Our, our guy, our, our, our pastor, our apostle, Paul, he is, he is suffering and we ought to reach out for him. So they put a gift together. They send it on out. Paul receives it. And this letter is the result. Paul, this book of Philippians is just a really long thank you note. Um, some of us write too short thank you notes. Some write too long of a thank you note. But uh, that's what the book of Philippians is. It's Paul returning his thanks back onto the church. And he knows that when he speaks to the church, they don't need to struggle with the gospel. They don't need to struggle with salvation. You know what they need? They need to be unified. They need to be together. They need to care for one another. The human struggle is the same no matter where you go on the earth. That people tend to want to look after who? Me, myself, and who? That's right, right here. Numero uno, right? I want to be number one. And that persists even as we come to know the Lord. Paul knows that's going to be a struggle. But he knows the answer is looking at Jesus Christ. 
I want you to take a look at this example. A few things that are mentioned here in verse 6. Notice, Jesus is in the very nature of God. The, the creed has it correct. Jesus is God from God. He's light from light. He's true God. He is eternally begotten. He is not created. Jesus is not a creature. He existed before time began. In fact, he was the agent of creation. And yet Jesus came and wrapped himself in this hamburger, in this meat that we walk around in. He became man. The same way that all of us came into this world. Some people want to depict, and you've seen pictures of little, little Jesus with Mary, right? And his, his eyes are glowing, right? He's got a halo around. I think he was crying like all the rest of the babies. I really do. I, I think he came into this world same way the rest of us did. And he had really a harder lot of it, too. You guys know the story, and as we'll read over the next couple of weeks, how poor Mary, she's exhausted, and Joseph is at his wit's end, and here you go. They're having the baby in humbleness, in a stable. He's the creator of the universe. He is God Almighty, and he comes into this world in a feeding trough. It didn't have to be that way. He could have chose any other way to come into this world. But Jesus comes, and it's called Advent. Remember, this is his coming, the word parousia. His coming into our world is not met with fanfare, is not met with trumpets and the red carpet laid out. He comes in humility. Paul catches this. Paul recognizes it because this speaks to today. Of course, we have, we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies, right? I got all the blessings of heaven. Resurrected body is coming. The hope of eternal life. Amen? That's all great here now and wonderful. But humility and following after Jesus today is seen in no other place more acutely than the incarnation. He comes not with fanfare, not with trumpets blaring, not with gifts being showered. He comes in a humble stable. Verse 6, very nature of God. says, does not consider equality with God something to grasp. This is the idea that it's held on to. Uh, if you've ever held on to something really hard, you know, your knuckles kind of turn white. You know, you got that grip. I'm not letting go. That wasn't the way it was with Jesus. Jesus wasn't in heaven with the Father saying, I'm not going. I'm staying here. I know what it's like. That mess down there is, is rubbish. Don't put me down there, right? He didn't hold on. He didn't consider this life with Jesus something to be held to, something to be grasped. But now look at verse 7. But instead, he made himself nothing. Um, the Greek word here is called kenosis. It's this idea of emptying. The idea is that Jesus emptied himself, not of his divinity, but he emptied himself of his position of uncontested royalty. He emptied himself into the container that we have. Bodies here on earth. Bodies that go through this mess here on earth. He made himself nothing. Paul continues to say that he took upon the very nature of a servant being made in human Likeness. There's a great passage in Matthew's gospel as the angel is going to come to Joseph in a dream. Because remember the story, right? Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant. And he's like, whoops, not sure what happened there. I don't want to embarrass her. So Joseph decides he's just going to divorce her quietly. But the angel comes to him in, his, in a dream and he gives him this word. He says that you will call him Emmanuel. His name will be called 
Emmanuel. Do you know what that word is? Emmanuel, it's a beautiful word. It means God with us. God with us. Reminds me when I used to choose teams at recess for kickball. Man, what if you had God on your team? That'd be fantastic, right? Who? No, no, he's with us. I pick God's with us, right? Now extend that to the struggles of this world. How fantastic is it that you don't serve a God that requires you to make pagan sacrifices or you've got to cut yourselves like some of the prophets of Baal had to do. You serve a God that is on your team. He is on your side. He is right here, right in the midst, right in the struggle, right in the difficulty of life. He is Emmanuel. That's what Paul says. He's being made in human, like, human likeness. Verse 8 explicitly uses the word humbled. And being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself. Now, just because he's on earth doesn't mean he's got to go through everything, does it? He's still God. And yet he does. We die because of sin. Did Jesus have sin? No. No. And yet he died. Understand. And the words from his mouth are clear when he says to his disciples, no one takes my life from me. No. Are you kidding? Nobody comes and takes my life from me. Right? Because Jesus has no sin. Therefore, he does not rightly deserve death. Instead, he chooses to lay down his life. Paul calls that humility. Paul calls that he humbled himself. He became obedient even on to death. I don't need to tell you this, but death sucks. It's, it's awful. That maybe is a crude word, but folks, that's, what, that's the way it is. Death is the worst. I could pick some worse words and we'd all agree. That's what death is. It's the worst thing that ever happened. And Jesus humbles himself even unto death. No quick death. No guillotine death. No lethal injection type of death. The worst death possible. Look what it says in verse 8. Became obedient unto death, even death on a what? Even death on a cross. So what do you think? You think you can scrub the toilet? You think that you can humble yourself? I feel like this reminder that Jesus, being God, humbles himself. This transfer is so huge that Paul will use this to defend his command to the church. So if we've looked at the, the example found in Jesus, let's look again at the command. What was it that Paul was saying? Go back with me again to verse 2. He says, then make my joy complete by what? By being like-minded. Having the same love. This is, a, this is a good one. This next one. Being one in spirit and purpose. That's what the church is called to. Now, do we always get along with one another? Oh, yeah, all the time. No problem. No problem. No, we still live in this difficult world, right? We still, uh, we still have all kinds of struggles. Just came through uh, an election here. I was glad Trump didn't build a wall before I could get back in the country. So we, we got back safe and sound. But there's all kinds of things that can divide us. There's all kinds of things that would cause us to fracture and to splinter. And if you can recall back months ago, do you remember the sermon series we did on caution? The dangers for the church? Biggest one there is is division. To have the church be divided. 
Paul says, I want you to be like-minded. You guys have the same mind. Have the same heart. Be united together in spirit and purpose. Man, what are we doing this for? We're doing this because we're together. We got a single mind. We work together on these things. Community meal? Man, we're all coming, right? Let's all, let this not just for someone. Our pastor can take care of that. We got the deacons. They'll take care of that. No, we are united. Let's all be together on these things. We're working right now to kind of uh, uh, freshen up the basement for the kids. Are we together on that? Yeah, yeah let, 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 this is a purpose. We are moving towards together as a church. I got a lot of really exciting ideas for missions, for looking out past our borders. We got to be united on these things. Single-minded. I got an email from Donna when I was away with a picture of her trunk of her car of 78 boxes. That's incredible. That's fantastic. This tiny little church in Segola. This, this little body of believers that wants to give and to help and to support. Great work. Fantastic. Single-minded. You see what can happen? We can make it such that she's got to take two trips. Or she got to at least put the seats down or something. Paul says, I want you to be single-minded. I want you to have one spirit, one purpose. Now, how do you do that? Because we all struggle, right? Well, look at verse 3. Here's how you do that. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, I don't probably need to define these too much for you. Selfish ambition is getting for who? Me, myself, and I. Paul says, quit doing that. You, you, you want to go first? Stop going first. Let someone else go first. You want to get the biggest slice for you? Man, give the biggest slice to somebody else. Nothing. Do nothing out of selfish reasons that I want for me. We got to cut that out. And the second one here, vain conceit. Conceit is that balloon. That's just pride. Man, you don't know who I am, man. I paid my dues. I'm, I, oh, I'm earned this. It's mine, right? Paul says, get rid of that. You, you're nobody before God. You know, we're all on the same level before God. There's no princes and kings and paupers and servants. We are all sinners before God. So all you're doing is acting in pride. All you're doing is acting in conceit. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But what? Because this is it. Ready? But in humility. You see how you can apply this today? You see how the incarnation matters today? You see how the birth of a Middle Eastern child 2,000 years ago matters for you today? Here's how you fix this. But in humility, consider others better than yourself. I'm not saying this is easy. And sometimes we definitely do not want to do this. But this is what God did for you. He humbled Himself. You want to be united in purpose? Does this church want to be united together, single-minded in spirit and in love? Here's how you do it. We serve each other. We, we consider others better than we consider ourselves. Now, some of us are sitting here thinking, but I'm pretty great. You, I, I, you don't know how wonderful I am. That's okay. That's okay. We have to... Take that attitude down. And we've got to begin to look with spiritual eyes at other people. We have been trained by a world to look at ourselves. 
shiny mirrors, glossy reflections. Like you can't buy a phone today without a camera that faces you, right? You can't do it, right? We love and are enamored with our own self. So if, if we struggle with this, don't worry, it's okay. You live in a world that's consumed with itself. Jesus wants to train you otherwise. Others are better. Other people are better. I want you to see the result. No, oh, let me, before I skip verse 4, just look at this real quick. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Like, what, what do other people need? Not just what do I need, but what do other people need? How can I help them with their needs? All right, look with me as we end here at the result. Uh, verse, verse 9 through 11. Jesus humbled himself. And what happened after that? So what did God do? He exalted him to the highest place. He gave him a name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of the Father. God will lift you up. But you heard from the children's message. He opposes the proud. Before I get to my application, I want you to go to one other passage with me. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter's writing to the church at large, a church that is suffering. They're struggling with this idea of um, elevating one another. And everybody's kind of in this difficult circumstance, wanting to watch out for themselves. 1 Peter chapter 5, I want you to see his words as he's wrapping up to, uh, to the elders, he's going to speak to the younger men. First uh, Peter 5.5. 5. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those that are older. Now that, that's tough, right? Because young guys, well, we know everything, right? We know everything. Right? You can't tell us a thing. Um, be submissive to those that are older. All of you clothe yourselves in humility. Isn't that beautiful? clothe yourselves in humility it's this idea that when i look at you i see your clothes right well what does peter want you to get when people look at you what should they see they should see humility it should be right there on this right evident from the inside out that you are somebody that clothes yourselves you're wearing it all day long i'm wearing i don't take it off to go be first here or put my agenda number one here you keep those clothes on all the time here's what he says he's going to Say this passage out of Proverbs. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Don't ever find yourself in opposition to God. You don't ever want to be there. Right? What does God with us mean? It means he's on your team. But if you start hogging all the glory for yourself and want it all for me, and it's my time and I've earned this, you know what you'll find? God will be opposed to you. Don't find yourself in that situation. He opposes the proud. But what's the rest say? He gives grace to the humble. Grace is what we don't deserve. It's unmerited favor. It's God's riches that I didn't even, I didn't even earn. It's extra blessing upon anything you could ever get for yourself. God gives it to who? He gives it to the humble. Verse 6. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Peter says it. Paul says it. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Here's my conclusion on this. Church, if God in Christ can give up his seat, 
we can give up ours. If Jesus can humble himself to that long distance from being God, transcendent and removed from all the mess we go through, to being put right into the middle of it, coming not as the king with trumpets and drums, but coming in a stable. Folks, if he can give up his chair, you can give up yours. We need God's help with this. But here's my challenge to you this week. As you look to apply the word of God into your life, I want to speak in three areas. First, to husbands and wives, all right? To spouses. So if someone fell asleep, now's the time to wake them up. Here you go. This is what I want you to begin to ask one another. Ready? Here it is. How can I serve you today? How can I serve you today? Wives, ask your man, hey, how can I serve you today? Husbands, look to your wives and ask them, how can I serve you today? You'll be putting others, other people's interests ahead of your own. You'll be valuing other people more than you value yourself. All right, so uh, let me get another sphere of life, all right, to uh, children and parents. All right, children, and even if you're grown up children, not just the little ones, right? Um, how can I honor and obey? Uh, I think obedience is something that comes within the home, right, with little kids, right? I got to obey my parents. Let me hear an amen, boys. All right. I got to obey my mom and dad. But even grown children can still honor their father and mother. Do you know that's what the command says? It's a pretty important one. God puts it in the Ten Commandments right after all the ones about God. You shall honor your father and your mother. And it comes with a promise that if you do this, you will live a long life on the earth. Children, I want you to ask the question this week. How can I honor and obey my parents this week? Now, parents, you got a question to ask too with your kids. How can I lead and love? All right, mom and dad. How can I lead and love? Do you know, even grown kids are still watching their parents and leadership and seeing the things that they value and the things that they put their time and their attention to. And love can be shown in so many ways. It doesn't have to just be in the home. Parents, how can I lead and how can I love? All right, so if you're not married and you don't have any kids, you got nothing to do this week? No, that's not true. All right, so here's my last one for everybody else and for all of us as well. Ask this question. How can I show you Jesus today? How can I show you Jesus today? When you're walking through Walmart, Christmas time, right, folks? Walking through Home Depot. Because there's some interesting people that come through Walmart, right? How can you show them Jesus? I'm getting the last cart for me. I'm getting the close parking spot before them. Right? Uh, how can you show them somebody who follows after the pattern of Jesus Christ? How can you humble yourself? How can you have other people's interests? How can you look beyond just the scope of the things that are on your to-do list for today to think that other people out there need to see the love of God? Husbands and wives, how can I serve you today? Parents and children, how can I honor and obey? And how can I lead and love? And for all of us, as we go from this place, ask this question this week and answer it in your life. How can I show you Jesus today? Let's pray together.